paper is by Clemmy, Clementine Power, mm -hmm. and it's called um, The AIDS Memorial Quilt, Mourning an Ongoing War. Hi. Um, Today, uh, I'll focus on the metaphorical representation of the American AIDS crisis as a war with the AIDS memorial quilt as a case study. Um, it's a giant textile memorial made by the bereaved to commemorate their loved ones. I'll take a design historical approach to assess how we use unique material processes to remember and memorialize during prolonged periods of trauma. Susan Sontag famously asserted that the early years of the AIDS epidemic in America between 1982 and 1996 are characterized by powerful apocalyptic metaphors. And whether one is talking in terms of the syndrome itself in relation to government inaction or of the militant activism that sprung up across America's gay urban centers, these are invariably metaphors of warfare. Longtime AIDS activist and founder of AIDSmeds.com, Peter Staley, said of the early years of the crisis, quote, it's like living in a war. All around you, people are dropping dead, and you're scared for your own life at the same time. Further, in discussing how we remember and memorialize AIDS, many scholars have drawn comparisons with the way we commemorate and mourn war, arguing that the AIDS memorial quilt owes much of its conceptual framework to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. <coughs> Similarly, the quilt's custodians, the Names Project, view themselves as closely aligned with efforts to memorialize the Holocaust. Thus, we can begin to see AIDS as part of an ideological war, not only affecting conceptions of masculinity, the body, and linguistics, but also prompting new modes of relating to, remembering, and memorializing trauma. So, I will outline the roots of the quilt in just a moment, um, but first, I think that an understanding of memory is central to this discussion. So, in 1990, John Clum asserted that, quote, in a gay culture now rightfully obsessed with a killer plague, remembering becomes a central act, and it is how and what one remembers that defines much of AIDS literature, art, and film. As something that is foremost an object of memory, the quilt can be situated within this assessment, playing a central role in the articulation of memory of the AIDS crisis. It represents panel makers' memories, commemorates the deceased's lives, and as a result, helps to construct a national memory of the crisis, acting as both repository and representation. It serves as a vessel for memories that form the foundations of people's identities, while also acting as the basis for the way many Americans relate to the epidemic. Memory can be understood as both the process of recollection as well as the representation of what is recalled. It is by its very nature multiple and yet specific and individual. It is a way of seeing and yet invariably a way of not seeing. In this respect, it is individual and selective. However, important theories, including French sociologist Maurice Alvac's collective memory theory, that indicate that despite memory biologically being wholly individual, culturally there are commonalities in the way that groups remember. Further, Hobbux points out that individuals remember in a relational, almost dialectic way, considering the thoughts of members of wider groups, whether that be family, friends, the wider community, or even the national population, for direction in what and how to remember. This forms a vital part of the identity-forging process among individuals as they work out how they relate to a wider group. The publication of Pierre Nora's work, Between Memory and History, constituted an important moment in the historiography of memory theory. A relentless critic of Havvaks, Nora attended to the distinction between memory and history, asserting that memory is, quote, unselfconscious, commanding, all-powerful, spontaneously actualizing, whereas history is the reconstruction, always problematic and incomplete, of what is no longer. 
nor took up the position that memory is being superseded by history and that we are increasingly living in a time when we can only represent the past rather than actually, re actually recall it. Rather than remembering authentically, Nora posits that we are engaged in a self-conscious pursuit of memory, which ultimately leads us to historicize. This notion has particular implications for material manifestations of memory, um, particularly memorials, which become a locus for reconstructing the past. When considering the quilt, however, such an analysis is only partly applicable. The implication that memory is superseded by a broader historical narrative implies that those doing the remembering do not actually remember the events in question. One of the interesting and somewhat contentious aspects of the quilt is that while it represents the deceased, the epidemic from which these people died is not over. As a living memorial, the quilt is fundamentally about the adding of material memories to a larger piece. In this respect, the quilt is a vital resource in both the remembering and historicizing of HIV and AIDS. It chronicles the generational shifts that render it possible to see the early years of the epidemic as an historical era, bridging the gap between memory and history. More recently, Annette Kuhn highlighted the two-way process of remembering, concurring that memories extend beyond the individual remembering, spreading into, quote, an extended network of meanings that bring together the personal with the familial, the cultural, the economic, the social, and the historical. So before I go any further, um, a background to the quilt. Um, in 1985, San Francisco's AIDS death toll reached 1,000, and in response, activist Cleve Jones proposed that all those joining in the annual march to commemorate Harvey Milk write the name of someone they knew who had died of AIDS on a piece of poster board. The boards were hung on the facade of the San Francisco Federal Building, creating, creating what theologian Peter S. Hawkins has described as a wall of memory that simply by naming names exposed both private loss and public indifference. On seeing the collection of names scrawled over the building's facade, Jones hit upon the key to communicating the destruction that AIDS was wreaking. Jones commented that for some time before he had been obsessed with, quote, the idea of evidence. Facing the Federal Building, Jones was reminded of a quilt. It was through this middle-class, family-oriented medium that this activist would show America his evidence. In this moment, Jones claims he conceived of the quilt, and in February 1987, he made the first panel to commemorate his friend Marvin Feldman. Its size was intended to mimic the size of the average gravestone, three feet by six feet. Eight panels sewn together created a block, and these were then grommeted together to create the quilt. The Names Project was organised in June 1987, and 40 panels were then displayed at San Francisco's Lesbian and Gay Freedom Day Parade. By August 1987, the quilt had grown tenfold. Two months later, at the National March for Lesbian and Gay Rights, the now 2,000-panel-strong quilt was laid out on the mall between the Washington Monument and the Capitol Building. The most recent statistics indicate the quilt has 6,000 blocks, when 94,000 people are named over 48,000 panels that take up 1.3 million square feet. And the names project still receive, on average, one panel every day. The quilt's role is multi-layered. Um, it is at once interventionist and activist, while also existing as a reaction and a response to death, to disease, and to a seemingly hopeless political situation. Play, um, in places, it's a collection of political statements, but fundamentally, it's a representation of individual people. Sometimes individuals are named as they would be on a gravestone, while at other times they're referred to by diminutives in relational terms or by pet names. Sometimes one person is named, sometimes tens of people. The only specifications for contributing panels is that they must measure six feet by three feet and have a name on them. 
The panels memorialising a person dead with AIDS provided Jones with the evidence he had been looking for. Physical representations of the deceased, not simply denoted by size, but emphasising the absolute individuality of each life lived and lost. As Richard D. Moore iterates, quote, The panels are not refractions of the tomb of the unknown soldier. Rather, each panel says that this person, like no other, was here. Thus, using deliberately American rhetoric and formats, the quote highlights individuality while also speaking on behalf of a collective. Although the idea of listing individual names on a memorial is not a new one, in the UK and across Europe, where any number of memorials to World War I lists without heed to rank the names of the dead, it was not a concept as, that was so widespread in America. Maya Lin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial changed this, listing names alphabetically and in the process thoroughly democratising the deaths of the Vietnam War. The names project follows in these footsteps, as Marita Sturkin noted, contending that, quote, by naming the dead, the quilt produces a collective body count. However, unlike the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the quilt has no official status, no public funding or permanent location in Washington. Um, in Hawkins' words, unlike the VVM, which is now complete, the quilt's response to AIDS keeps growing with the losses from the epidemic. So if we are to view the quilt as a response to a, a type of metaphorical war, then it is a response to an ongoing one. Jones's individual ideas must be considered as part of the broader cultural backdrop of the AIDS crisis. As Sontag discussed in her iconic book, AIDS and its Metaphors, the early years of the crisis in America is commonly dealt with using metaphors of warfare. Such an analogy can be highly detrimental to persons living with HIV and AIDS, not least because it generates a perception of the illness as unbeatable and therefore not worth fighting, ultimately generating a sense of apathy when it comes to a clear response. Sontag's assessments point to the dualism of the epidemic. HIV and AIDS is, as Guste Yep notes, quote, actually an amalgamation of two parallel epidemics, biomedical and cultural, mutually influencing each other. While Sontag's work focuses on the metaphoric war between the disease and the human body, the language of warfare can be located in other areas of the crisis as well. In particular, AIDS activist ACT UP engaged in a militant activism that employed inflammatory rhetoric as a way to push for drugs and to advocate for those living with AIDS. Similarly, the experience of living through the early years of the AIDS crisis is invariably characterised by metaphors of warfare. AIDS activist and film scholar Vito Russo lamented that a lot of people have lost all their friends, and that's an experience I don't think a lot of young people have in their lifetime except during war. Charles Morris concurred with this assessment, proposing that the scope and depth of loss suffered during the first wave of the AIDS epidemic compares only to the toll of war. With the cultural climate of the period and the effects of such an analogy in mind, we can understand the remembering <laughs> processes embodied in the quilt as emerging from a very particular warlike experience. This notion is not entirely new. Um, in discussing how we remember and memorialize AIDS, many scholars in the field have argued that the quilt owes much of its conceptual framework to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Meanwhile, Gert McMullen, longtime handmaiden of the quilt, uh, refers to the panels as her soldiers. These are the old soldiers, she said to me, gesturing at the warehouse filled to the ceiling with quilt, and we keep getting new troops in. McMullen speaks to the fighting rhetoric of the activist community during the early years of the crisis, as well as the ability of the quilt to serve as a monument to the casualties of this metaphorical war. The quilt's iconic displays on the Washington Mall physically place it alongside memorials of war. Indeed, Jones himself highlighted the fundam fundamental links between the quilt and its stone contemporaries during a speech at the first display in 1987. 
We stand here tonight in the shadow of monuments, great structures of stone and metal created by the American people to honor our nation's dead and to proclaim the principles of our democracy. Here we trace with our fingers the promises of justice and liberty etched deep by our ancestors in marble and bronze. Today, we have borne in our arms and on our shoulders a new monument to our nation's capital. It's not made of stone or metal and was not raised by engineers. Our monument was sewn of soft fabric and thread, and it was created in homes across America, wherever friends and families gathered to remember their loved ones lost to AIDS. With this, Jones highlights the absolute Americanness of the quilt, both in its aims and its manifestation. He places the marginalized communities affected by AIDS in the heartland of American democracy. He and those who participated in that first march were, quote, laying down their dead in front of the White House. With this speech, Jones highlights important ideas regarding space and place, while also emphasizing that a significant portion of the quilt's power lies in its materiality. This brings me to the quilt's textile form. Um, tactile, foldable, and soft, it offers makers the opportunity to re-describe persons with AIDS in a sensory manner. Not only are people individualized by the visual content of a panel, but that their names are rendered in fabric rather than stone is, I think, vital. The capacity of textiles as a dynamic material that is used for such intensely intimate items as clothing and bedding imbues them with a universalism that is connected not to death, but to life. Where stone distances us from the dead, the intense fragility of the quilt as something that can be easily destroyed, but at the same time is regularly used in the most intimate of ways, communicates the intense human sensibility of the quilt. Sturkin delineates between stone memorials and the quilt by classing it as an object whose materiality cum communicates human relationships. Quote, All objects carry the implication of human contact. The quilt, in its materiality, conveys the message of human connection and community to counteract the isolation and loneliness of AIDS. Displays of the quilt play a vital role in undercutting the damaging language that has characterised the AIDS virus and, by extension, persons with it. It serves an important text. Sorry, I said AIDS virus. That's I didn't mean to say that. Um, it serves as an important text of witness, not just to the crisis, but to the individuals affected. On the quilt, the intimate stretches as far as the eye can see, thoroughly humanising otherwise distant statistics. So, while we can consider the quilt as a response to a warlike experience, another proposed way of thinking about the AIDS crisis is what has been referred to as the genocide frame. While AIDS has been characterized in terms of warfare, the NAMES project view themselves as closely aligned with efforts to memorialize the Holocaust. Executive Director Julie Rode cites Jerusalem's Yad Vashem as an exemplar memorial, facets of which the NAMES project are aspiring to. In particular, one can liken the quilt to Yad Vashem's Hall of Names, where photographs and fragments of testimonials represent, albeit on a small scale, the Jewish population that experienced the Holocaust. Both memorials, using ephemeral objects, emphasize the importance of remembering not just the events, but the individual lives implicated. Rhodes' referencing of memorials to the Holocaust works in tandem with the language employed by long-term AIDS activists and prominent members of the gay community. Such language was claimed and shaped, most notably by activist and playwright Larry Kramer, in his non-fiction work, Reports from the Holocaust, the story of an AIDS activist. However, the use of this genocide frame, as it has been termed, to communicate the damage of the AIDS crisis is rooted in the sexual liberation movement of the 1970s. Through appropriating the symbol of the pink triangle, initially used to identify homosexuals in Nazi concentration camps, gay rights campaigners sought to highlight the overlooked fate of thousands of gay people during the Holocaust, while also drawing attention to their subjugated status in contemporary society. 
Famously, Harvey Milk, um, for whom Cleve Jones was working during the 1970s, said of Proposition 6 that called for the banning of all openly gay men from teaching in California's public schools that his constituents, quote, are not going to sit back in silence as 300,000 of our gay brothers and sisters did in Nazi Germany. We are not going to allow our rights to be taken away and then march with bowed heads into the gas chambers. The Holocaust frame was already present by the time the AIDS crisis ascended, with the pink triangle serving as a well-worn symbol of gay rights. However, the Holocaust as a symbolic resource took on heightened meaning during the 1980s. Um, A. Stein argues that the Holocaust frame is the result of a social movement's attempts to locate a fixed idea, in this case an historical event, through which they can define themselves and gain adherence. When it comes to the AIDS crisis, the Holocaust frame was employed firstly, although somewhat fleetingly, in um, conspiracy theories that suggested AIDS was a government-created disease, um, a sort of form of state-sponsored genocide. Um, however, the dominant use of the frame soon became one that focused on inaction, or as Stephen Epstein has described it, genocide by neglect. Similarly, in charting the motivations to write his novel A Cry in the Desert, Jed A. Bryan argued that, quote, the correlation between American selective sight and that of Germans in the 1930s and 40s is striking. In the final analysis, the results are the same. They vary in degree, but not in any measure of rightness or wrongness. Meanwhile, in a more inflammatory and charismatic um, characteristic manner, in 1987, ACT UP sponsored a float that depicted persons living with HIV and AIDS as concentration camp prisoners as a response to public discussions proposing the quarantining of persons with HIV and AIDS. The analogy of the Holocaust worked for AIDS activists because it was powerful, ubiquitous, and was categorically understood to be morally wrong, a crime not just against its victims, but against humanity. Further, its power, as David Caron notes, to evoke exceptionality is central to its use. As such, it is certainly a problematic trope of rhetorical excess, prompting difficult questions concerned with the ownership of memories. However, as a widespread analogy, it provides an insight into perceptions of the crisis as specific and unique, thus requiring innovative modes of memorialization. Although the Holocaust frame is arguably no longer invoked to describe the AIDS crisis in the 21st century, its associated rhetoric still resonates with many people. For example, in a Medius Working Group conference held in May 2013, advocates including Perry and Halkitas repeatedly employed the term survivor, a term often associated with persons who survived Nazi concentration camps, to describe gay men of his generation, explaining that, I know no adult life without AIDS. The gay men of my generation, infected or not, are long-term survivors of this disease. And the assessment of the quilt as part of a rhetorical war continues in contemporary discourse, with founder Cleve Jones, who left the Names Project some 10 years ago, criticising the organisation for, quote, holding a weapon that they have decommissioned. And Staley, in a recent documentary about the crisis, lamented, just so many good people died, and like any war, you wonder why you came home. To conclude, I am addressing the rhetorical processes that have rendered HIV and AIDS as characterised by metaphors of warfare. The AIDS memorial quilt takes up an important place within this rhetoric, and while it does indeed borrow from various modes of commemorating war, it also stands as a unique intervention in memory to highlight both the normalcy of those lost to AIDS, as well as the uniqueness of the illness from a political and social perspective. Thank you.